Welcome to the Red Letter Christians podcast. Red Letter Christians gets our name from the Bibles that highlight the words of Jesus in red. And we're aspiring to live as if Jesus meant the stuff he said. We know that the loudest, most prominent voices representing Christianity in America haven't always been the most beautiful or the most faithful voices. And we know that the way we change the narrative is by changing the narrators. We are committed to amplifying the voices of people who are dedicated to Jesus and to justice. Yeah. Hello, everybody. This is so great. Thanks for joining us. I know we're going to have some folks kind of coming into the the space here. I'm just going to welcome you and get out of the way pretty quick here. But uh, this is our monthly book club. And um, it's really special. You know, Lisa and I um, are great friends. We're we're we love doing stuff together. And she's also a really, really great moderator and conversation leader in these these spaces so i'm i'm excited to step back and listen and i'm so pumped uh lisa will introduce our our special guest amy kenny in just a minute but a few things on the horizon well first of all i'm in the icu unit u unit in the pennsylvania hospital and would just appreciate prayers for our friend melissa uh, she is the first person I ever got to work with at Red Letter Christians and has actually been diagnosed with West Nile virus and has a real depleted immune system. She's been, it's been very, very serious, life-threatening, and she just woke up for the first time in days. So we're celebrating that, and um, that's why I'll be wearing a mask, too. I'm kind of in a corner of the hospital, but um, it's so great to have this community, you know, that we're all cheering each other on, supporting each other. Um, And some things that we got going on every month are the book club. We've also got morning prayer is the first of each month. Um, We do common prayer. Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove and I will be joined by Dr. Shaniqua Walker-Barnes this month, which will be absolutely incredible. Um, So that's November 1st, nine o'clock. Um, a bunch of us are going to be down at the Christian Community Development Association. CCDA is meeting this week. You can also see a lot of the talks online. Um, I'm teaming up with Reverend Sharon Risher. We're going to tag team preach down there about forgiveness and grace. And um, so check all that out. It's not too late to get to Charlotte if you're feeling like a road trip. Um, and if you're in Philly, Lisa and I are going to be together this weekend. We're doing a few things, but we're also celebrating the grand opening of our raw tools shop where we'll be turning guns into garden tools. So we're, um, if you're anywhere near Philly, come out on Saturday afternoon. Um, and then this month with RLC, we've got a faith forum on the science of joy. It's going to be so great. There's a neuroscientist that studied joy and what it does to your brain and your body. And um, we're probably going to have a few other guests too, but it's going to be awesome. So that's November 10th, seven o'clock. So enough of all that. This is going to be an absolutely epic night. I'm going to put my mask on, step back. Lisa Sharon Harper, y'all, board of directors for Simple Way and, um, the, you know, founder of Freedom Road, which is one of our core partners. Love you, Lisa. Love you too, Shane. <laughs> Shane, thank you so much for that wonderful introduction and also for all the amazing things that are happening on at RLC. It's pretty exciting, actually, what's going on um, in this community and uh, raw tools. Yay, raw tools. Um, and also CCDA that that's coming up. Very exciting that uh, that you're going to be there with Reverend Sharon Risher. I mean, you guys are fabulous together. Um, I am excited for our conversation tonight. 
We have with us tonight um, a woman who I met through our global writers group at Freedom Road and has literally changed the way that I see the world. Um, she was not the first disability justice um, advocate that I, that I encountered, but her stories, which became this book, My Body Is Not a Prayer Request, but she began writing the very first time that she joined that group and she had no idea she was writing a book. She just started to write. Um, this book has changed the way that I see everything. It is awesome. Everybody, you must get this book. You must get this book. I know my camera is like struggling to figure out, okay, where are you, Lisa? <laughs> so anyway, I, it's my pleasure and honor to introduce you um, to Dr. Amy Kenny. Dr. Amy Kenny is a disabled scholar and a Shakespeare lecturer whose work has been featured in Teen Vogue, The Mighty, The Audacity, and Sojourners. She's a scribe for Freedom Road Institute um, for Leadership and Justice and serves on the Mayor's Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Task Force in California. Although just recently she shifted, she actually moved coasts. And I want to read to you her, her, her new uh, role. She's launching the Disability Cultural Initiative at Georgetown University, an inaugural role that will establish a new disability cultural center, one of the only, of only a handful in the entire country. So welcome, Dr. Amy Kenny. Wow, well, thank you so much, Lisa, for that kind, for that kind introduction. I'm just so thrilled to be here with you. Thank you. Well, I, I, I mean, I really am thrilled to be with you too. And I've been rereading your book over, you know, the last 24 hours or so. And let me just say, I, it's like literally all marked up. I don't know if you can see, <laughs> I have so many dog ears and all these, and like, you know, notes in the margins. It's just so good. And I mean, you and I were in the same space as you were writing a lot of the original um, chapters in the book. And so I feel like I've had the privilege, I did have the privilege of, of seeing you kind of really work out a lot of these thoughts, um, but more than that, work out the way to communicate them. And I just want to say, wow, <laughs> you are such a great writer. And it, we've always, everybody who was in the group always said that, Amy, there's never any like really harsh critique or any real critique at all in terms of the writing. It was always just in terms of, wow, I didn't know that. Oh my gosh, you know. So you just blew our minds every single week. And now reading your book, My Body is Not a Prayer Request, you've blown my mind again. I think it's the impact of seeing it all together in book form. So if you don't mind, what I want to do is I want to like kind of just work through the book. We're not going to go through every single chapter. I don't think we have the time for that. Um, but in the time that we have, what I want to do is I want to um, to work through certain certain themes and then at the end, I'd love to ask you if you could read a portion of the Disabled God chapter, chapter nine. Would you, would you do that? Yeah, okay, that's in the absolutely. end. We'll, we'll, we'll close or get to the close with that. So starting out, I just want to um, point out that on the very first page of the book, you will really kind of in the preface, but even before the preface, you make a note about language. And I thought this was interesting. I mean, you talked about your decision to use the word disabled as opposed to differently abled or 
um, people with disabilities, that kind of thing. Can you talk to us literally about that language? Because I'm sure people are going to have that question who are watching tonight. What made you make the decision to use that language? Yeah, definitely. So a lot of people love to use euphemisms for disability. And I think that it really just expresses how embarrassed they are talking about disability. So people will say differently abled, handy capable, special needs. There's nothing really special about me needing to use a restroom when I'm out in public. That's just well, a human need. And I think a lot of these euphemisms show yeah. us how uncomfortable people are with my disabled body and with other disabled body minds. And there's so much debate around what language to use. And mm -hmm. I want to respect disabled folks with whatever language they choose to identify themselves. But a lot of the debate happens kind of around us. And our disability rights slogan is nothing about us without us that you can't talk about us, in instead talk with us, learn from us, learn with us. Mm -hmm. And so in the book, I do use disabled people because that's how I identify. And it's a kind of loving pushback to the shame of disability. It says, hey, I'm disabled. I'm not ashamed of that. I'm unapologetic about being disabled. I'm proud of my disabled body mind because it is made in the image of the divine. And that there is nothing wrong with identifying as being proud of my disabled body mind. It's funny because you actually say di disabled body mind. Where do you get that language from? Because I did see that and I thought, wow, that's an interesting twist of phrase, disabled body mind. Where does that come from? Or what do you, what does that language mean to you? That comes from fellow disabled scholars, activists, folks who are really trying to push back on this idea of body-mind dualism, that we are not, you know, separated beings, that our minds live in our bodies and they are part of our bodies. And it identifies that there shouldn't be a hierarchy of mind and body. And we mm -hmm. want to be celebrating our integration into mm. one body-mind. I love that. And let me just say that, I mean, I, I'm sure that everybody who's listening you're kind of starting to understand why I love this person so much. <laughs> like she's deep, right? She's totally deep. I see people nodding their heads. Yes, exactly. You're, you're getting it. Okay. So on page uh, one, <laughs> we're going to start on page one, on page one of this incredible book, you start, like you drop the word eugenics. I was like, what? <laughs> she did not on page one. She did not build to it. Like it wasn't the thing that came in the last chapter. No, no, not with Amy Kennedy. She starts on page one and it says Intern internally, I make a swift calculation, endure the prayer. Cause what we were talking about is this woman who comes up to you um, basically saying, I believe that you need prayer and God wants to heal you. Right. And so you're like, oh crap. Right. So internally, I make a swift calculation, endure the prayer to avoid squabble or call her out on her benevolent eugenics and be branded a heretic again. It's like, I wrote in the margin, wow. So on page one, you drop eugenics. Can you tell us how that, what does that have to do with anything here? Yeah, folks who approach me, and this will be just when I'm on my way to the library or when I'm at the grocery store or when I'm at church, Folks will approach me and I want to believe they're well-meaning, but they approach me and 
decide that I need prayer in order to be fixed. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they come with their own homemade potions. I've received many, uh, an essential oil from people and many different potions that people have made. Or sometimes they just touch me without my consent or um, try to exercise my demons. And I think at the root of this is this idea that disability is sinful or something to be eradicated. And Mm. we know that one in four people in the United States are disabled. And so if we are only imagining a world by erasing 26% of the U.S. population, well, that sounds like eugenics to me. Wow. 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 One in four people in the United States are disabled. That's deep. That's really deep. And so eugenics is that, that system of kind of what they called natural selection, but actually they, of course, then rigged it, um, trying to um, kill off people or tie tubes and um, give uh, unwanted hysterectomies in order to um, breed out the, the lesser races and categories of people and disabled people were among them. That's so deep. So, so you equated this prayer to heal you with eugenics. So on page three, no, sorry, not page three, page five. So we're going, we're moving. <laughs> on page five, you introduce Zach, Zachariah and John nine. And you, you started by talking about churchgoers have been too hasty to dismiss passages of scripture where disability is celebrated as a blessing or a prophetic witness because it doesn't fit their neat cultural narrative of disability, making people uncomfortable. And then you talk about John 9, you introduced John 9. So one of the things that I really appreciated was that you actually took us through a few different passages of scripture where where disability is actually celebrated. It's actually one of these pieces. And it's something that people who are not disabled, I can tell you right now, in my Bible studies, nobody even mentioned the fact that these people were disabled or saw it, we didn't see it. Um, so can you take us through John nine and, or just, you know, give us the point. What's the point that you land at? And cause I'll tell you, it blew my mind when I was reading it in this chapter. Thanks. Yeah. This is the passage where a person who's born blind is interacting with Jesus and the disciples say, who sinned this guy or his parents? And Jesus says, nope, neither. You missed it. That's not the point. This guy is blind so that the God's glory can be revealed. And really the bulk of the passage happens after the person receives sight and if, if it was only about curing this person, it would end within seven verses. But the chapter goes on for another 40 verses or so, demonstrating the stigma against this person and the fact that receiving sight actually doesn't remove any of that stigma. It only enhances it. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think this passage That's demonstrates deep. to us a lot of the stigma against disabled people then and now. And it also reveals that Jesus's healing is about something much richer than just changing bodies or body minds. It is about a a deeper, richer, more interdependent process. 
So I think that this passage reveals to us that difference between curing and healing. Curing is a quick, rapid process. It's usually individualistic. It's usually about a physiological process. Healing is messy. It's complicated. It's about that goodness between that you talk so richly about in your work. It's about restoring people to community and to relationships. Mm-hmm. And that is much, it's, it takes time. It's much more difficult for us to fake. And I think historically, a lot of churches in the States here have been more interested in curing, in just using prayer as a vending machine and getting rid of disabled folks than they have been about actually healing the ableism that is in churches. Mm-hmm. Now, the thing that also struck me, I mean, I, I mean, I just, I feel like honestly, I could, I could read this whole book to people. It's so good. <laughs> but um, on page 11, so we're going forward um, and it's in that same section, the same chapter with curing, the difference between curing and healing. This really struck me. You said disability encompasses a broad constellation of bodies, minds, and experiences. So the social construct cannot account for everyone, but it is a helpful framework for naming how the structures we have put in place often disable people more than individual bodies do. I, I mean, I, I literally underlined that twice, put a little squiggly thing underneath it too, bracketed it on the sides to make sure that I like really remembered this. And then later on, just jump down about maybe two paragraphs. You say in this social model of disability, um, curing is often unnecessary because the social structures disabling people are healed. So in other words, when you think about healing someone or healing, who needs the healing? It's not the person who's disabled. It's the society that has built structures that disable people. Yeah. I mean, in my case specifically, so thinking about navigating the world using a wheelchair or mobility scooter, that is only disabling because we've put stairs everywhere. If we had ramps, if we bothered to build the environment for the flourishing of us all, then it wouldn't actually be difficult using a wheelchair or mobility scooter. Wheelchairs mean freedom. They give us access to the world. I get to ride around on a chariot and a throne, bedazzled with a Wonder Woman W in the front. That's not (laughs) sad. That's cool. Everyone wants to ride along with me. But it becomes sad and it becomes disabling because there are stairs. But the thing is, we get to rebuild the world with ramps so that we can all participate. Yes. Wow. Ramps, elevators. I mean, all of the things that, that can actually help us. Sensory help us to have a more braille, ASL interpreters. Right. Yeah. Right. A more equitable society. That is honestly, it's just, it is such a different way of seeing the world, but it makes me under, I mean, I understand it as a black woman, right? When I sit in a boardroom meeting or I sit in a church and let's put it like, let's, let's take it down to the lowest common denominator. Let's talk about retrieval, go to church. Right. And I go to a church and let's actually take an actual church service that I went to. Um, this is the Sunday after 
Trayvon Martin's um, George Zimmerman, the, his his murderers, uh, his murderer was let off, right? And it was Hoodie Sunday. And for people of African descent, what we need in that space in order for us to feel served by this by the church, which is called to serve all of the sheep, is we need somebody to mention it. We need somebody to say, hey, you know, we are with you. We need, we need a prayer for the family. We need a prayer for people of African descent. And at the church that I went to, they may as well have had steps. Like, you know what I mean? Like nobody mentioned it. There were no hoods. There was no anything. And so I felt unserved. And that's part of this, how they structured that service in a way that did not serve everyone sitting in that. That's how I relate to it. So, but that happens for me. Um, it happens. It's called microaggressions for people of, of, of different ethnicities in predominantly white settings. But what you're talking about is micro and macro aggressions that happen uh, for people who are disabled every single day. And every time you go into a church that I get it, I get totally. it. So yeah, and there's someone. Oh, sorry, Lisa, go ahead. No, 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 go on. Yeah, it's everything from someone saying lame, you know, as a slur, I am lame. And it's not great to be everyone's idea of something undesirable and cheesy. It's everything from that to stares to attitudes. It's the built environment. It's the fact that churches don't have to be accessible because they fought against the ADA in 1990. It's all of those things. And then that contributes to further isolation and feelings of not belonging and not being able to participate in the mutual flourishing of new creation. So you actually, I think one of the things that you do in this first chapter is you help us to, I mean, just right off the bat, see the world through your eyes and see you through your eyes, see people, disabled people through your eyes. In other words, you help us to see the image of God, the equal image of God called to exercise dominion in the world um, that is imbued in, in disabled people. And I love how you end this chapter saying, my disabled body is made of the same stuff as stars. I don't know why, but that really got me because I think that that gets all of us when we think of the fact that we literally, we are made of stardust, like our bodies are made of stardust, but we don't think of disabled bodies as being made of stardust. And what does that do? It equalizes disabled bodies. It's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I think so, beyond giving permission to be beautiful. Yeah. And sparkly. Yeah. And Wonder Woman. And I, yeah. And bright I want all cane. of us to shine. <laughs> I love that. The bright <laughs> blue cane. That was fabulous. I want to see it. That was fabulous. Okay. All right. So we're going to jump into disabled disability discrimination. That's the next chapter. Um, or maybe one or two, I think it's the next chapter over. So you said my te- now you're talking about your school experience here. Right. And this really, this really struck me. I was like, you know, I know we think we pass laws and now everything is better. But even when we go back to the Civil Rights Act, which the ADA is actually stands on on the strength of the Civil Rights Act. But when they passed the Civil Rights Act, there was movement pushback against it in the in the preceding years that actually slowed its progress down and even took away some of the things that that had passed that first year. 
And, and it, you don't really think, you think, okay, we passed this big monumental thing. Now everything's fine. But what you ran into in your school was actually, no, not everything is not, everything is not fine. And I couldn't believe the story of your teachers rolling their eyes that they had to be there early in the morning to figure out how to, how to give you an education that was going to be equal to everybody else's. That just blows my mind. And you said on page 25, my teachers ignored explicit federal mandates about how to accommodate my disability, which makes their ableist behavior easy to identify because it directly violates laws intended to protect disabled students. But most ableism lurks beneath the surface. So, and then you go into, you go into like, some of where, where does that come from and what, how does it surface? Can you share with us, um, first of all, how often are you, do you run into the explicit breaking of ADA legislation in institutions? And then second, um, what's, what are the ways that it surfaces um, in ways that are more implicit, not explicit? I run into ableism every day explicit and implicit. I am on the bus and the ramp breaks or there's no ramp or I try to go to get a coffee and there's stairs instead of a ramp mm-hmm. or the one elevator to access a meeting is broken. And so I miss the meeting. I run into ableist attitudes all the time. It's people using derogatory words and slurs that put disabled body minds down. It's also ideas of thinking that disabled people aren't capable or smart or contribute anything. Mm -hmm. So I've been told everything from, wow, you're smart for a disabled person to, I didn't realize disabled people could teach to I've never known a professor or someone with a PhD who is disabled. Thanks, I guess. Wow. And that's what they say to my face. So imagine what they say behind my back. Mm -hmm. And I think beyond those explicit examples, there's the assumptions and attitudes that disabled people are just not among us Mm -hmm. or that don't teach. So Mm -hmm. in many places whether it be a church with a pulpit or a school setting, the actual place where the preacher or teacher is, is inaccessible. And what does that tell to us? It says that disabled people don't have anything to share with our community. They don't have anything to teach us. We're just to receive, we're to be passive objects in someone else's story. And we have so much to contribute to the church and to the world. So I actually, I, I love that later, just right on that same page, you go into Aristotle um, because it's really literally what, what came up for me as I was reading. And also in this conversation, I'm like, oh, we got to talk about Aristotle because we have to talk about where does this come from? Like, what's the root that would lead people to say to you the same things I've heard? I mean, I've heard as a person of African descent, a person with brown skin, um, as a woman, I've heard... Um, oh, you're so smart. <laughs> you're intelligent. Um, wow. I didn't realize um, that 
I mean, or not, or literally not even think to invite me to speak or to put me on a panel or, or in my earlier days before, you know, people knew who I was, you know, I would say something in a meeting and then nobody would respond at all. And then a white man would say the same thing. And everybody would be like, yeah, that's so true. Yeah. You know, that kind of a thing. Right. So those are the microaggressions that I run into. And they're very similar to the ones that you run into, which should be indication that they're coming from the same source. And I love how you name one of the sources. In fact, I think it's a primary source, Aristotle. So do you want to tell us a little bit about that? What did you find in your research? I love, I love that you started with, I loved that you named Aristotle because I don't know if I've ever heard that before, (laughs) but this, because most people don't want to talk about Aristotle. So it's very exciting. Yeah, Aristotle claims that disabled people lacked reason and therefore were subhuman. And I think it's very clear from Aristotle's work that he's creating a hierarchy and that hierarchy is the basis for racism, sexism, ableism, queerphobia, so many different philosophies that are still pervasive today and are all intertwined. And part of what I think is so important about intersectionality and about talking about these experiences that we each have, but from different perspectives, is recognizing how intertwined all of these systems are. They are all designed to create this hierarchy. And we know that all of us are made in the image of God. That doesn't change if you're disabled or regardless of your gender or ethnicity or how much money you have in your bank account or what you can and can't do. No, we all radiate God's image. Mm -hmm. And so it should be blatantly obvious to us that Aristotle's philosophies and the systems and structures that we have in place today are harmful to everyone. Mm. So on page 28, you say, when the Americans with Disabilities Act was signed into law in 1990, It excluded religious communities after some Christian leaders lobbied for restrictions. Um, You shared that on my kitchen table conversation when we talked. And I remember my jaw dropped because I was like, like, I never realized the church is exempted from the ADA. Yeah. What? Yeah. Like you would... The ADA is a... uh, Go ahead. I'm sorry. Let me just say this real quick. I'm sorry. Sorry. (laughs) you would think that the church would not lobby to be exempted from something that mandates equal treatment under the law. I mean, it mandates kindness. It mandates um, thinking about someone. It mandates Philippians 2, considering the other as more important than yourself. That's what that mandate is. But the church... Oh my God, I'm just like, ah, uh, yeah. The church lobbied. Okay, now talk. <laughs> Say your yeah. Thing. That's not loving your neighbor. No. The church leaders lobbied against the Americans with Disabilities Act when it was signed into law in 1990. Now the ADA is a floor, not a ceiling. It, it you can get out of of actually using the ADA if there's a historic building or if, you know, there's a lot of different ways of not abiding by the ADA. And unfortunately, it doesn't even go far enough. But even that is too high a bar 
for the church to clear. And church leaders said that it was too costly and that it, it goes against religious freedom to include disabled people. So it's still legal to discriminate against disabled people in churches in the United States. And if that's legal, imagine what's happening with attitudes, practices, community. Yes. And I, I just found out because I'm not, I'm not, I mean, I am a scholar in as much as I've done a lot of work and, and tested my work with other scholars, but I'm not a PhD. I'm getting my PhD, by the way, I'm about to enter into a program. Yeah. Hello. Yay. Um, but that said, you know, I just found out because I was in conversation with a bunch of scholars that really Amer- Western Christianity rests on two Western philosophers. There's two main streams of thought within Western or schools of thought within Western Christianity. And one of those schools of thought rests on the thinking of Plato and the other of those schools of thought in Western Christianity um, rests on the thinking of Aristotle. Now, how about that? Yeah. I'm like, wow. Okay, so in my conversation with some of these these scholars, these theologians, you know, they had this aha moment as I was talking about, well, look what Aristotle said. Aristotle was the the person who brought like explicit hierarchy into Western um, Western philosophy. And they were like, you know, this is the reason for the need for deconstruction. And I said, no, 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 that's not the reason for this deconstruction. It's the reason for the need for decolonization of the text. This text, this brown text we call the Bible has been colonized by white, explicitly white supremacist, male supremacist, able-bodied supremacist, um, Christos, and it became Christo supremacist um, thinking that is grounded in these two philosophers. So when I read that, that the church had lobbied, that, that really broke my heart. And then you say, but for all its flaws and lack of enforcement, the ADA was a huge win for the disability community. I watched Crip Camp earlier this year, and it really moved me deeply. Um, I watched it, honestly, in large part because I wanted, reading your work made me want to know more, maybe you want to understand more. And by the end of that thing, I, I got it. Like, it was in me. It was in my flesh. I got it. And um, Crip Camp ends with the passage of the ADA um, and just to know that what it took, like what it took to get there and the conditions of disabled people before the ADA to think that the church um, was fighting against it. Again, it grieves me. But it also what it also does is it makes it makes it explicitly clear that the church is very, very much um, at the heart, at the center of, and actually trying to entrench and protect um, white male supremacy, able-bodied supremacy in America. And that, for that, we need to repent. Do you have anything you want to say about that? Amen. Amen. <laughs> well, you know what? You're going to say a lot when, we, when you read that last chapter. So I will, I will reserve that. But I do want to say this. Um, on page 58, you talk about um, your body is a result of the fall, this pastor says, right? So that's part of what is fueling this idea, right? That um, or this, the movement of the church to, 
to push back against the equality of disabled people, it's, it has to do with how we think of fallenness and he, the need for a cure and God wants to cure you. And I have to say that early in my own preaching on Shalom, before I was called out in front of people by a disabled person saying, what are you saying about my body? And I was like, uh, 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 I really didn't know. I used to preach that, well, because it says it's very good um, at the very end, there can't, if I would say there's no disability, there's no, there's um, no broken bodies um, in, in, uh, on the first page of the Bible. I now do not say that because I understand two things. One, that tov, goodness, is not referring to the things, it's referring to the relationships. So there could have been, and very well were, disabled bodies, but the relatedness, the relationship between the disabled people and the systems that governed them were fine. That's what was um, extraordinarily good, radically good. But I, I wanted to know, do you want to say anything more about that? Like the fall, how, how does the fall factor into your intersection with the church? I really appreciate that story, Lisa, because it shows that we all can grow and we all get to, and that's part of the work is us learning from one another's stories and realizing, oh, I have made an assumption there. And that idea that the goodness is between radically shifts this notion of perfectionism. We're not striving to be perfect. We're not God. We're not striving to have a body that is our white, ableist, sexist idea of what perfect is. Mm -hmm. We are creating and co-creating the goodness between us for all of our flourishing. Mm -hmm. And this notion that there are no wheelchairs in heaven, which is a poem and a phrase that I'm often the, the recipient of, that's not very comforting to me. Why are people wanting to erase one of the ways that I engage with the world? Mm. Why are people wanting to erase my body? If you can't imagine new creation without imagining ramps, then talk to more disabled people. If you can't imagine new creation without imagining ASL, at that scene in Revelation where we're, where we're singing in every tongue and every yes. language, we have our own languages as a disability yes. community. We have our own history and heroes and ways of communicating. And we are uniquely creative because we live in a world not built for our body minds. Wow. So this idea that we would want to erase that makes no sense and is only rooted in very ableist, white supremacist notions of perfection. And at one point, I don't know, I can't remember where it is. And I think I skipped over it. It's somewhere in here. You said something, you just very, very briefly, you said, the more somebody thinks about Calvin, the more that they are into Calvin, the more this is true. Can you talk to me about that? <laughs> what is the relationship between Calvin and this thinking? I think there's this idea of Calvinism of, you know, this worm theology and this idea that we are bad and condemned and that therefore my body fits into that idea. Mm -hmm. And instead, 
In that passage that you're talking about in Genesis, we see that God created goodness and God created this flourishing for all of us. And it's really hard for people to attribute that to disabled body minds. Mm -hmm. But we see throughout scripture, Moses, Elijah, Zacchaeus, Jesus, Jacob, the list goes on, are disabled and they're not erased or even there's not this idea that you have to be cured in order to be meaningful to the kingdom, but we erase disability in the stories that we tell. And we in turn erase the work that God is already doing in and through disability now. And I think a lot about that banquet that Jesus describes in Luke 14. And Jesus talks about how disabled folks and poor folks are invited first And then there is enough for everyone to dine. There's no talk of cure or condemnation. There's only talk of community. Mm -hmm. The accessible banquet, new creation is accessible and it's for all of us. And we get to be community together. Yes. And amen. And I think that, I mean, when I think about the Calvin piece that I circled it, it's actually on page 57 in the same chapter um, and you were, you were saying many churches are just like these doctors, the doctors um, that don't want you to be human. Um, they want you to perform the role of suffering or pious disabled person, right? So there's these two roles that you get to perform um, depending on how much Calvin they've internalized. I just love that. I just love that. You are so snarky. And at the same time, <laughs> you know, I, have, I mean, you really are. You're like, but it, I make it honestly, it makes the read a little, that much more enjoyable. But I, the reason why that resonated with me is because, um, first of all, I want to say Calvin, as Calvin was internalized in the U.S., is different than Calvin um, in Europe. Very, very different because it's Calvin mixed with Puritanism. And there's, but at the same time, there's also flawedness, as there would be with any philosophy, um, with Calvinism itself. And what it tends to be, what what tends to be, um, uh, uh highlighted that I think is, is problematic here is that Calvin is, is all about, you know, utter depravity, that we are utterly depraved um, in our bodies and in our human, and he, basically he's very, very um, dualistic in that way, not understanding that body and spirit are all one and that um, we are, he doesn't have a very robust, and, and at least not that I've seen robust um, uh, understanding of the image of God and how that um, uh makes us all divine actually. Um, and so the question of purity then becomes a huge one for those who are deep into Calvinism because their goal is to become perfect because they're going from utter depravity into perfection, right? To be more like Jesus who is perfect. That's the goal of God. But what you really are doing here is you really are kind of taking a dynamite stick to that that whole idea that the goal of God is our purity. The goal of God is our curedness. Rather, the goal of God is our healing. And I have to say, I know I'm talking a lot, but I just need to say this. You, you, what you just said, it actually helps me to see that last chapter in Revelation differently. The last chapter where it says the, 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 the tree of, the, of life is the only one that's standing in the new Jerusalem. And its leaves are for the healing of the nations. I mean, if someone was reading that through a lens of Calvin or a lens of 
um, you know, don't even just say Calvin, but a lens of Aristotle, you would say it's, they would think of it in terms of the way that you think of curing. It's for the making of perfection of the nations so that all the bodies are well, all the bodies are perfect. But if you think of it as the healing of the nations, oh my God, in the rubric that you've put out, it's, it's the holistic healing of the relatedness between the systems in the nations and the people yeah. so that the people are all seen and they flourish as one's made in the image of God. That, that honestly, you just, you just literally revolutionized revelations 21 for me. You just right now just did that. Yeah. And the whole community of creation, right. That we're all interconnected and that that flourishing that happens between all of us is something we all get to help co-create and that that healing doesn't erase any of the distinctive qualities of any of us. It doesn't turn us all into Barbie doll copies of each other. No, we get to flourish together in our beautiful, radiant body minds, disabled, non-disabled. It doesn't, it's not about making us all the same. So I would love for you now in our last few minutes, if you would turn to chapter nine and you would read from 147 to the end of 149, I'm giving you, this is a good chunk, but I I think this is actually a chunk that you read for us in our um, global writers group. And I never forgot it. And I think that I would love for everybody here to hear this because this is going to push every button you have, everybody. <laughs> okay. I'm going to read it from my computer because that's a little easier. Oh, good. Okay. The woman next to me is sobbing. The man across the aisle is jumping up and down as if he's about to go a few rounds in a boxing ring despite his ripped skinny jeans. No one dares to make eye contact with me, but everyone in the congregation glances my way, making sure I hear the promises the lyrics hold for me. We're at the part of the song that exclaims there'll be no lame in heaven because in Jesus's presence we'll be healed and whole. Non-disabled folks couldn't be happier. It's a sea of buffalo plaid arms raised high in the air. Never mind that I don't feel broken or incomplete. Everyone else is too wrapped up in my erasure to notice. Do you realize that Jesus's body will be the only one that isn't perfect in heaven? The preacher starts. I'm not sure what qualifies him to make such a proclamation. Has he been to heaven? What's a perfect body anyway? But no one else seems to question it. Most folks in the crimson-backed pews cheer for this claim as though someone just announced we're each going home with a brand new Mercedes. Instead of Oprah shouting, you get a car, it's a screecher shouting, you get a perfect body and you get a perfect body and you get a perfect body to each of us in turn. As if the lack of perfect bodies is the predominant thing wrong in our current world. I'd be more excited that no one hungers or thirsts in new creation, especially since in our wealthy nation, one in six children don't know where their next meal comes from. But I guess my disabled body would be the focus of your praise if you were just trying to distract yourself from actually doing something about poverty. We have enough food to prevent people dying from hunger. We just don't want to share it. Fantasies of breeding out disability aside, I'm not even sure any of this messaging is true. One thing I think the preacher gets right, Jesus triumphed over death and retained the scars of crucifixion. But who's to say we will be any different? When Daniel visits the clouds of heaven, he describes the throne was fiery flames and its wheels burning fire. 
A chair with wheels sounds a lot like a wheelchair to me, and one that gives new meaning to burning rubber. Maybe that's something we should sing about. Turns out it's not just me and Daniel picturing God in a wheelchair. Ezekiel describes God as a radiant fire with a massive mobility device that is lifted by four angels with fused legs and colossal wheels. The wheels encase wheels that glisten like topaz. God uses a fiery, shimmering, turquoise wheelchair to get around, and so should I. My wheels liberate me and allow me to operate in tandem with my scooter, Diana. Her tires grip the pavement, absorbing the shockwaves my legs would otherwise have to endure. I lean into her slightly as we go around a corner, like water caressing the riverbank as it flows. I feel the texture of the earth, the rhythm of the cement. I hear the symphony of vibrations as we drift from concrete to cobblestone. My physicality does not stop at the tip of my toes or the crown of my head. It extends to the frame of my cobalt chair, able to transport me to new worlds. Just like Ezekiel's vision, I am fused with these wheels that are my ticket to freedom. I am body, wheel, and fire. Yes. Thank you, Amy. Right. Ooh. Wow. Yes. Thank you. And Thank amen. You, Everyone, Amy Kenny. That's Amy Kenny right there. So remember that, remember that name, remember this, this book, get this book. This book needs to be read by every church in America, the whole church, everybody. And if you are a writer or want to be a writer and you're interested in the global writers group, I'm going to put the link to it in the chat and people are writing amazing books, amazing articles, amazing, all kind of stuff, songs, um, all kind of stuff in that group. And you're welcome to it. Every Saturday we meet um, from 9 a.m. Eastern time to noon, we write. And then from noon to one, we read a few minutes of our, of our work and then get a minute of feedback, a minute or two of feedback. And then we get a tip, a writing tip, and we're finished for the day. So Amy, thank you so much for sharing your work with us, sharing your thoughts with the world. Um, you are fire and cobalt and all thank of the you, things. Lisa. Amen. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Red Letter Christians podcast. Too often, Christians have used our faith as a ticket into heaven and a license to ignore the world we live in. But at Red Letter Christians, we believe our faith is not just about going to heaven when we die, but also about bringing heaven to earth while we live. For more information on Red Letter Christians and upcoming events, additional resources, you can go to the show notes or our website, redletterchristians.org. You can also support Red Letter Christians by giving a one-time donation or becoming a monthly sustainer. Just go to our website and click the red donate button. Thank you for being a part of this conversation and for being a part of this movement.